everybody. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Talk Podcast. I believe episode 49, so we're getting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, today we are joined by Pastor Paul Vandenbrink, if I'm saying that correctly, from the Grace Valley Church, uh, PCA Church in Dundas, Ontario. Um, so yeah, welcome. Uh, good to have you here. And you. Um, we're going to talk about the topic of deconstructing our faith and deconstruction today. I'm sure no one knows what that means yet, but we'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe just to start, like, uh, give us a little intro of who you are. And um, I'm curious because you planted your church five years ago or so. Yeah, thereabouts. Um, yeah. I'm curious. So, Let us, you know, fill us in. Sure. Um, so I actually, I, I, I don't know how far back I'm supposed to go, but I'll, I'll oh, try right, to be right back to your birth. When were you born? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church in uh, Smithville, Ontario, is where really? I'm from. And I went to Redeemer, and while I was at Redeemer, my father sold his grocery store, which I thought I was going to take over when I was done my university education, but now I was out of a job in a future. <laughs> so Thanks, Dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Probably really good, because when he sent me off there, I didn't really want to go. And uh, when I was trying to decide what to study, I, I picked English because I like to read books. And I thought, well, this is an easy degree to get, yeah. but I want to take over a business when I'm done with no business yeah. education at all. So all right. I think he understood that this was probably not the future for me. Anyway, uh, and while I was there, I uh, I ended up just uh, getting a deeper appreciation for doctrine and theology and studying religion. And uh, so uh, three weeks before my, was it my engagement? Yeah, three weeks before my engagement, I said to my wife, or maybe it was our wedding. I don't know. I totally sprung it on her. I said, hey, I think I want to go to seminary. And she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so um, At least it was before, not three weeks after. Yeah. <laughs> I sh- if I was smart, I would have waited till afterwards. <laughs> uh, not much she can do about it then, right? No. Uh, so anyhow, so I went to seminary. I went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia with honestly no other purpose than to study the Bible more and learn more about the Bible. That's all. That's all it was. Uh, And while I was there, um, I read some books about being a pastor and I very quickly decided I would not be a pastor. uh, That worked out good too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I just, I just finished a master's in religion degree and uh, I was teaching part-time while I was a student and I enjoyed teaching. So when I was finished, I, we moved back to Canada, started teaching at a a Christian school, high school in Toronto. And I taught Bible for a year and it was good, except, you know, there's curriculum you're supposed to follow and you're supposed to give assignments and then you're supposed to mark the assignments and then you're supposed to be able to defend the mark you gave. And I hated all that stuff. I just like talking about the gospel and the Bible with young people. So the church I was attending, which was a, a, a Christian reformed church North of Toronto had a position for a, uh, youth pastor. And so I applied for that position and then I got it. And while I was there, the senior pastor of the church, he said, you know, uh, if you're going to work in the church, you really should pursue ordination. So I pursued ordination. And four years later, uh, I was called to the ministry and took a call in 2005 to a Christian Reformed church in Dundas. Okay. And so I pastored there for about 10 and a half years. But when I got there... So this is 2005. I get there. I have taken like no preaching courses, no practical theology courses, nothing. I'm like, now I'm a minister at a church and I got to preach two sermons every week and I got to figure out how to explain the gospel to people. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And uh, I had taken courses while at Westminster with Tim Keller. Uh, So he taught these modules. He was already at Redeemer uh, in New York, but he taught these modules and I just appreciated the way he articulated the gospel and taught the Bible. So I started 
looking for everything that he had produced that I could find sermons, writings, et cetera. And I basically just immersed myself in everything Tim Keller for like a year. So I'm like, I got to figure out how to communicate the gospel to my people. So I did that and I kind of learned on the job how to be a preacher. And uh, over the next 10 years, just uh, experienced a lot of uh, exciting things in our church. We grew, uh, we had people who were lifetime so-called Christians coming to the faith for the first time, really, or being revived in their faith, or I don't know how else to describe it. And we had new new Christians, we had adult baptisms, which was a bit of a rarity among Reformed churches, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a really exciting time. But because of the influence of Keller, I obviously started having this missional sort of impulse driven into me and uh, by his teaching. And I, I became more and more convinced that uh, that one of the purposes of the church is to do mission and to be involved in spreading the gospel among, mm-hmm. among uh, non-Christians. And Dundas was the town that we were connected to. Our church was in the country, like a lot of Reformed churches often are right you know you come over here as a poor immigrant you want to start a church you got to find the cheapest land you can so (laughs) you end up way out in the middle of nowhere and uh and so uh we just had a heart for this town um it was a beautiful town not much of a vibrant christian presence in town at all there's a number of mainline churches but they're older and dwindling and uh very progressive like quite liberal and uh yeah, so eventually we just uh, decided that we thought maybe we should consider planting a church or at least planting a site of our church there. So like another campus kind mm-hmm. of thing. But that didn't work out um, with the CRC we were at. Uh, and so I was a little frustrated by that. I totally understood why the church didn't want to do it. Um, but I had a different sense of calling, I guess you could call it. And uh, in pretty dramatic fashion, uh, I'm a Presbyterian, so it's not like um, God speaks audibly to me very mm. often. But um, in 2014, my mother had a stroke, uh, a hemorrhagic stroke, like right out of the blue. Whoa. And she was a healthy woman, had this stroke, and five days later, she died. And she was at the General Hospital in Hamilton, and my family, we were kind of keeping vigil. Uh, and since it was pretty close to where I lived, I would go there after work and and spend the evenings there. And one evening I was driving there and I just had this moment of clarity where I thought, you know, um, God can put things on people's hearts that they can't shake, Mm. but he doesn't necessarily tell them how long they have to do the thing he's put on their heart. Mm. And I had been sitting with this desire to plant this church for like four years. And my wife had been getting very tired of listening to me talk about doing it, but never doing anything about it. So she was at the point where she said, look, you either do it or you don't. I'll stay with you or I'll go with you, but let's stop talking about it. Right. And driving to the hospital, I had just this moment of clarity where I was like, I'm going to plant a church. And two days later, my mom passed away. And a year later, I left my established congregation to plant a church in Dundas. Wow. That is quite the story. That's like, so <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, so how that's the background. <clears throat> so that's a PCA church, I guess, yep. by, uh, um, I guess it did it by denomination, I guess. Yep. Um, how is that connected to CRC? Out of, my, not, sheer, yes. out of my sheer curiosity. Yeah. Like what's, what's, what's up with that is what you're saying. Well, well, I had, enough, I suppose. so I had approached the CRC about, uh, this planting idea, but, um, it wasn't, it wasn't really on their radar because there were a number of CRCs in the area already. Right. And um, I was, when I decided to plant, there's sort of three things that I was, that I was wrestling with. One was, um, I'm going to plant a church very close to a congregation that I have pastored for a long time already. Like there's, it's probably three kilometers away right. from where I used to pastor. And I didn't want to cause strife, I guess, in Mm. the congregation over this and have people to potentially like, maybe they like me and they say, we want to leave and go with him rather than stay. Right, right. And so if you have to leave, not just a local church, but a a denomination or a federation at the same time, that's a bigger step. Mm -hmm. 
So that was one part of it. Um, another part was um, having gone to Westminster, I was very familiar with the PCA, okay. uh, knew it quite well, was very closely aligned theologically with the PCA. And when I wanted to plant, I wanted to plant with a body that I knew had a track record, not just of theological rigor, but evangelistic and missional mm. uh, accomplishment, right. if I can call because it that. Because they have that. a lot of, like, PC has a lot of missional yeah. churches or mission churches that are, I guess, being, I, I forget the words you use, oh, particularized in your... Uh, yes, that's your, what we do, I think we I particularize. Heard particularized, and I guess we would call it instituted, probably, or something yeah, like or that. Or organized, but, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so the PCA, as, as a denomination, even though it's theologically reformed, it's always had, as part of its kind of core identity, this missionary evangelistic zeal. So mm. they always want to plant churches. They've thought a lot about how to communicate the gospel in a postmodern culture, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they've had some success. Mm. So uh, that was a really, really big part of it as well. And and the theological alignment. I was more aligned, frankly, with the PCA than the CRC uh, and had always been a little bit uncomfortable uh, in the CRC. So it just seemed like it was a wise thing to do to make that move. Were you concerned about like drifting over time with the CRC as well? From a well, theological yeah, standpoint? you know, yeah. So there were signs that that had me concerned, and I didn't want to start a new church. Uh, you know, see Lord willing some conversions, uh, disciple new believers, and then you know, twenty years later, say, okay, now we're in a difficult situation. Yeah, Are we right. going to affiliate with someone else or whatever? I didn't want any of that. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to focus locally. Yeah. So. Gotcha. So it's been going well. So why did you start your, because you have a, a podcast called the Clearer Thinking Podcast. People can go and listen to Paul there. Uh, but what, why uh, did you start <laughs> yeah. that? I mean, yeah, what's so, up with that? No, it's, uh, I mean, that's it, great. We've both listened to a whole bunch of them and and definitely informative. And I mean, it got us talking about deconstruction. So is sure. it helpful like in your missional efforts? Is that kind of why uh, I going? You know, that's not why I started it. You know what started it? It was the pandemic. Mm. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the things we do uh, at our church is after the sermon, uh, I do a bit of a Q&A. So if people have questions during the sermon that pop into their mind, they can text me. And after the sermon, I'll try to answer some questions to bring a little more clarity to something or to flesh out one of the points a little more deeply or something like that. And then when we stopped meeting, we were meeting virtually or we, we had recorded services, stuff like that. All those, that all ended. Right. And we weren't able to meet together for virtually anything for a while, uh, especially because we rent, we were renting our worship space and we were allowed to use it for Sunday for two hours for church, but not for anything else. So we didn't really have places to meet in larger groups. Anyway, and so I was trying to figure out, well, how do I continue to teach my congregation through the pandemic? Mm. And, you know, my administrator, Kate, she's like, you should do a podcast. I'm like, what's a podcast? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of behind all this, the times on all this kind of stuff. And so she explained, I said, oh, okay, yeah, so then I'll do that. So what it started out as a way for me to expand on the sermon. Mm. So you would hear a podcast. So I did it weekly and you would hear the podcast from the prior Sunday's sermon, and I would take one aspect of it, let's say, and share more. Every preacher will tell you that you always leave in your study yeah, right. half the stuff that you want to share with your congregation because you can't say everything. So right. it was for that reason. And then after a while, it kind of moved to sort of more just teaching sort of theological truths. We don't have mm. a second service where you'd get a catechism sermon, let's say, right. um, in, in our tradition. And so I wanted to, you know, help my congregation work through theological things. Right. Uh, so, you know, I did a series on the doctrines of grace, for example, mm. and explaining this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, and, you know, there were probably 25 people listening to it, but that was okay. At least somebody was. Yep. I couldn't even get my wife to listen to it at first, but anyhow. Oh, <laughs> my wife doesn't listen to this. So. Okay, good. It's <laughs> fine. Or my kids, certainly yeah, my kids. Um, yeah, and then when the second second season started, then then I started talking about deconstruction. Right. Okay. Cultural so, issues and... Yeah. 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 So now it's moved away from... So it started out as kind of biblical theology, biblical yep. exegesis, moved to more theology proper, and now it's more 
cultural cultural application yeah yeah gotcha but it's helpful so yeah yeah anything before we dive right into it well yeah i mean kind of i do i do want to get into it like so deconstruction is uh well obviously define it but then maybe just give us a bit of a background like what made you want to tackle this uh subject um is is this a trend you're seeing on the mission field near church sure yeah um so definition first i guess what is what is deconstruction um so there's obviously a whole philosophical school um and literary school called deconstruction. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I mean, I, I know about that stuff. I was an English major and all that. And, uh, and we talked about it in seminary, but I'm talking more sort of very simply about this, this phenomenon that you have happening in the church right now, where, where people are kind of pulling apart the, the assumed, um, beliefs that they had, that they were raised with. Right. So, you know, you're raised with all these beliefs that you sort of accept kind of unquestioningly, right? Mm-hmm. As you're growing up, your parents teach you and they tell you things about the Bible and yep. about life and all that kind of stuff. You say, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. Um, but then something happens in their lives and uh, over time, what they end up doing is they end up sort of questioning those beliefs um, and for a variety of reasons, and they start kind of studying them very critically. And mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize like, deconstruction is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, right? Um, oftentimes what happens when people are trying to, are, are going through the process of deconstructing their faith, what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to kind of separate biblical Christianity from the cultural form that they've inherited, yep. right? So um, every church has both, right? So you guys go to a church and it, it has its theology, And it also has its culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes um, the the cultural beliefs can kind of be conflated with the actual Christian beliefs or the Mm -hmm. biblical beliefs. Right. And so some people, they they look back and they say, well, is is what I'm experiencing there uh, cultural or is it Christian? So, you know, the the best example for that right now, if you have any interest in what's happening south of the border is when you start when you start mixing Christianity and politics so closely that someone says, you know, to be a Christian is to be Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Or to be a Christian is to be dem- a Democrat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so oftentimes people are doing that, but there there can be unhealthy expressions of that as well. Mm-hmm. So you have you know, you have people who have, I, I'm a complementarian. You guys are complementarians, I assume you go to complementarian churches, right? So yeah. um we believe that there are distinct roles for men and women in the church and, and in the home. And uh, we believe that because we have a high view of the Bible. Mm. But sometimes uh, expressions of complementarianism aren't very healthy. And yep. people can bump up against that. And they say, well, like, this is what it means to be complementarian. And you have a high view of the Bible. And so what they do is they see a poor expression of a biblical teaching. Mm. and they connect it to another biblical teaching, like having a high view of the Bible. Yeah. So if you have a high view of the Bible, you're going to be, you know, right. a complementarian and then you're going to treat women poorly. Yeah. And therefore, I don't want to treat women poorly. So now I question the authority of the Bible. You gotcha. get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if you subscribe to 1950s gender roles and you think that is clearly in line with the biblical standard, complementarian, blah, blah, blah. Then, yeah, obviously, if you come to question that side of things, you're going to start to question more parts. That's right. So that's where deconstruction can be sort of unhealthy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, But other aspects of it are actually good because, you know, we, when you live in a culture, it's like being a fish in the water, right? Mm. Can you, can a fish describe water? Uh, Maybe kind of, but it's just what it lives in. Yeah. And so to be able to step back sometimes and go, Hmm, you know, what's going on here that is actually grounded in scripture and what here is kind of a distortion of that Mm -hmm. is a good thing yeah is there a line to draw then in this like uh, between deconstruction i guess like proper like calling something deconstruction and saying like just you know having doubts about your faith or even like just asking hard questions or looking for answers in the bible and i guess not like put like putting them up and against your culture but like 
just looking for those answers and like in a healthy yeah context. so so we, I mean, we, the word deconstruction is kind of used negatively by people like me, right? <laughs> I guess right? we'll jump on that train. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think so. Deconstruction isn't isn't the same as doubt. Hmm. Um, people can, people who have faith can doubt, right? I mean, John the Baptist, he's the guy who said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." He baptizes Jesus. He gets to hear God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Mm -hmm. He gets all this evidence that Jesus is the son of God. And then of course he ends up in jail yep. and his, he's about to be beheaded and yeah. everything's going sideways. And he's, like, is he's really like, you? Is, uh, are you the guy we're supposed to be looking for yeah. or should we be looking for someone else? He's so pretty he's direct doubting. about it. Yeah. Yes. Come on, so he's man. doubting. That's natural, right? Yeah. Like people doubt. At Matthew 28, Jesus is resurrected. He's on the mountainside with these guys. He's about to be ascended into heaven. And it says, and his disciples believed, but some doubted. Mm. So doubt is a part of the faith, always has been a part yeah. of the faith. The whole book of Psalms is just full of yeah. one example after yeah. another of a psalmist saying, I don't know, are you there, God? It's yeah. me, David. Remember, you said you would do this, and now yeah. I'm like this, and are you going to be there for me? So that's that's okay. Like That, of course, mm. is is okay. I think that what happens in deconstruction is <sighs> doubts turn into an agenda to undermine rather than um, doubts being, you know, Augustine always talks about faith seeking understanding. And when you have doubts, you, you, you believe, but you ask God to sure. overcome your unbelief, yeah. right? Through, through, your, through your investigative process. But in deconstruction, what seems to happen is people people take on the process as a means of like undermining the very thing that that they're supposed to be trying to strengthen. Do you, do you think like a, a healthy deconstruction process in today's culture sometimes gets hijacked by critical theory and how people are just dismantling every system? And they start to do that I, yeah. with Christianity. So I, yeah. So I, I think, I think that's one of the reasons it seems more prevalent today mm. is because, um, we live in a culture right now, you know, postmodern, post-structural, expressive individualism, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different titles for what the, what the philosophical ethos is yep. right now. Yep. But on a very simple sort of, everyday people level we live in a culture that right now has been taught that the way you access truth is looking inward not outward mm -hmm. right so the first thing is is i look inside and i test whatever i see outside against how i feel and if it resonates it's true if it's not i can reject it as false right, right. so that's a very subjective way yeah. of trying to determine what is true so we have that. We have, yeah, you know, there's this whole critical race theory going on. I mean, there's some good things about actual critical theory. You could almost say, in fact, that the Old Testament prophets were critical theorists because they're criticizing the uh, the assumptions and the structures of the uh, nation of Israel um, that are not in line with scripture. So there's a, a way you can do sort of critical theory in a, in a healthy way. But what has happened is... Um, critical theory has sort of uh, introduced to sort of the regular people who live their lives not in the ivory towers, et cetera, to this idea that um, they need to be suspicious of institutions. They need to be suspicious of revealed truth. They yeah. need to be suspicious of authority because they're all power plays, right? Mm. They're all ways of the oppressor trying to keep the oppressed down, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so people are more comfortable, frankly, questioning um, and not questioning for the purpose of understanding, but for the purpose of overthrowing. Yeah. Right? yeah that what I'm 100%. saying? Right. Yeah. And then you add on top of that, a culture right now where nobody seems to be willing to trust any source of truth, yeah. right? You know, the mainstream media is wrong and the left wing media and the right wing media and everybody. And how do I know what's true? Um, so you put all that into a soup together yeah. 
And I think that has given uh, fuel, I guess, to mm-hmm. this kind of phenomena of people saying, yeah, let's apply that to my traditional conservative upbringing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just leaves people in nowhere land. Like, a, like they, they're just kind of lost if they're not actually looking for answers. They're just looking to question for the sake of overthrowing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not always. Some people, some people go through that process and they come back actually stronger in their faith. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, good doubt works a little bit like a, like a, almost like a vaccine, right? Like you get a little bit of the, yeah, the illness, worse. right? To strengthen your antibodies up to, against it, against yeah, the mm-hmm. real thing, right? So, so that process can be good, but you know, there's so many examples of it not going well yeah, for yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like doubt is fine. That's good to have, and there's a lot of value in that process. But I think you see a lot of like I'm just it's more of a question I'm guessing. But are, do you see more and more people who are just who end up lost at the end of this? Uh, yeah, just following along with the cultural milieu that we have, which is just essentially institutionalizing doubt at every level. Do I see more people? Well, not personally. Um, so, so what the reason I got interested in this was because, uh, I started seeing, you know, in media, you know, there were these, these famous people, famous Christians who are kind of talking about their journey of deconstruction, right? So you have like, uh, Rachel Held Evans, she's passed away now, but she's a very popular writer, um, women's, uh, Christian writer. Jen Hatmaker is another mm-hmm. one, probably one of the most famous in in the ref, sort of young, restless, reformed camp would be Joshua Harris, right? He was a gospel coalition guy. He was a sovereign grace church leader. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he like leaves the faith. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I'm not up on all these Christian music celebs, but there's been a whole host of them that have done the same thing. And then uh, bloggers and YouTube stars and all this kind of stuff. It just seemed like everywhere you turned every week, there was another formerly solid Christian leader of some sort Mm -hmm. declaring to the world, usually through Instagram or Facebook, you know, I have left the faith or they've radically rethought Mm. the faith, right? Because some of them don't deny Christianity entirely. Some of them yeah. say, well, I've, I've just come to a, now they're a progressive Christian or, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, something, follower um, of Christ or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They call themselves a follower of Jesus. Uh, you know, but they don't, they don't hold to inerrancy of scripture. They, uh, they don't like penal substitutionary atonement. They certainly don't like complementarianism. They definitely do not like, um, you know, the historic Christian view of, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity and those kinds of things. Right. So they've Mm. radically changed their understanding of the gospel and, you know, what, what the call to a disciple should look like. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. I was listening to your podcast when I was cutting the grass yesterday after work, but um, that idea of penal substitutionary atonement and that being offensive to more progressive Christians, I hadn't really thought of that before, but I guess, they they just don't like this idea of like a bench a quote unquote vengeful God who needs his son to have his bloodshed to mm-hmm. uh, to pay for our sins. Right. That's yeah. I wonder why that seems so offensive to them. Just it seems too Old Testament, I guess. Well, um, well, yeah. I guess it seems too Old Testament in a, in a sense, but um, it's this idea. So Stephen Chalk, he's a he's a British theologian slash church leader guy. And he, he calls it divine child abuse, right? So this idea that God is a wrathful God and, and the picture of wrath they always paint is, you know, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're, when your dad kind of loses it, right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I better get out of the room because he's mad and, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's looking for someone to bellow at or, or <laughs> swipe or something like that. <laughs> the picture is like that, like God lost his temper. And now he's out for blood. Yeah, he's looking for a pound of flesh. Yeah, that's what he wants. And so he, if he can't get you, he'll get his son. Yeah. And Mm. he, you know, sticks him to the cross and pounds on him. And, you know, that's the picture of of substitutionary Mm. atonement that that they they 
paint for people yeah. when that's not the biblical picture at all. Like, how do you reconcile that with Romans 5, right? God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the mm. partnership between Father and Son, Jesus says, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me, right? Yeah. He's not this, it's not this picture of Jesus, like trying to get out of the room like you are when dad's really mad. And, you know, God yeah. grabbing him by the scruff of the net, get back here. Mm-hmm. It's not like that at all. He says, I will go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the father says, I will take the the loss of my son in order to save these people. Like mm-hmm. that's what substitutionary atonement is is actually about. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a character caricature yeah. mm-hmm. of the actual biblical doctrine. Do you find like people who like new converts and people who are new to the faith, is that something that trips them up? Or at no. All? Not at all. No. Absolutely not. No. If if it's understood well, yeah, and it's explained yeah. properly, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. Right? Like, so I steal I steal a lot of things from Keller. I told you that I spent a lot of time listening <laughs> to him, right? And I just find that he has he has ways of saying things that are very effective, especially with new Christians, mm. seeker type folks. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he always says is that. Um, the gospel tells you that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. So you're more sinful than you even realize. Mm-hmm. It's actually a grace of God that you don't know how bad you are because you'd probably hate yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> if you knew yeah. how bad you are. Yeah. So you are worse than you, because when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see that nothing short of the death of the son of God could pay for your sin. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say I'm a good guy who screws up once in a while. Like that's mm-hmm. not no. the level of how bad you are. Totally yeah. depraved. Every single one of us has, you know, the potential within us to be like a Hitler. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, thank God, none of very few yeah. people actually become like that, yeah. but everyone has the, the seed. Charles Spurgeon used to describe it as the acorn and the, the oak tree, right? Mm-hmm. The, inside every acorn is the potential to be a whole forest of oak trees. Now, most acorns don't become that. You need the right conditions and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But every acorn could. And so every human heart could. We're worse than we think we are. But at exactly the same time, we are more loved and cherished than we ever dared hope. Because when you look at the cross, you see that Jesus willingly, of his own volition, said, I will die for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that when... He was, when he was hanging on the cross and he saw these people spitting at him and mocking him and, and, and deriding him and all this kind of stuff, I'm sure he wasn't saying to himself, oh man, these people are just so lovable, yeah. <laughs> right? He didn't die for us because we're lovable. He died for us so that we would become lovable, yep. right? We become the people that we were created to be. And so what is amazing about the gospel is that it, it provides the thing that every human heart longs more than anything else. What we long for is to be deeply known and be deeply loved at exactly the same time. Mm. And we, in and of ourselves, we do not think that we can experience that. We can either be really, really deeply known, but then people will be disgusted by us and repulsed by us and have had enough of us. Mm-hmm. Or we can be deeply loved, but then we have to hide our true selves and we have to give some kind of persona that makes us worth their Love. Mm. In the gospel, you have God saying, I deeply know you, that you're more wicked than you ever dared imagine, but I deeply love you. You are more loved and cherished than you ever dared hope. You have the holy grail of relationships with me and me Mm. only. And when, in my experience, when you share that with non-Christians, that melts their hearts. They don't, Mm. they don't say to themselves, oh, but like, why all the bloodshed? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. not what they're thinking. <laughs> they're thinking, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this is too good to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, man. So what leads? Yeah, like it's such good news, obviously. And, and it's I mean, when you're a believer, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you can have your doubts, but but, you know, you, when you work things out, yeah, you sometimes get just stronger in your faith. So like, like you're saying now, like, this isn't making me weaker in my faith. Um, so what leads people to like trying to just like deconstruct their faith? And then like, I know you mentioned that they often have like 
a lifestyle that they're trying to justify or something that they're kind of after they're kind of like longing after the world or they've already decided in their heart that they want to um you know they want to reject their faith because they long for something in this world like yeah well it it depends yeah (laughs) it depends a little bit on sort of their own sophistication and the level of deconstruction they undergo. Right. Um, so for example, Jen Hatmaker's story will be that she hasn't left the faith, mm. that she's, she hasn't reinvented the faith, but the, the Christian faith has evolved and she's come to understand that some of the, uh, what she would call sort of simple traditional doctrines that she was raised, raised with were, are not actually, um, viable in a modern world, reasonable in a modern world. Right. Um, and then there's often a precipitating issue, right? So for for right now, I would say that one of the big questions that uh, young people find that leads them down this path of deconstruction is um, issues of human sexuality mm-hmm. and gender identity. So they're wrestling with a world that has... so. First of all, you got to realize the world has complete, at least modern Western culture. Okay. I should not say the world because that's very wrong. (laughs) Saudi Arabia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You go to Africa, it's a different story, right? So, um, but modern Western culture has swallowed entirely the same sex narrative. So homosexuality is not an issue in modern Western culture. Like you're Mm. just a weirdo if you still think that only men, men should only marry women and you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so young people are swimming in that culture all the time and they're more and more meeting very nice, very kind, very moral in a lot of ways, actually, uh, gay people. Mm. And, and they're struggling to understand why would God deny them this deep, longing that every human being has, which is to have a life partner and live in relationship, et cetera. Right. So you have that and you can't reconcile with the Bible. And frankly, um, a lot of conservative churches, we haven't done a great job of putting forth, um, the reasons behind the, the historic biblical position on these issues Yep, and the beauty of, you know, uh, gender and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. So, so they don't have, they don't have something to, to kind of hold on to and say, well, wait a minute. You know, I understand that, that this is a distortion. The world's perspective is a distortion of an, of a good that the Bible describes. Uh, and so then they, that's sort of the thread that they pull and they say, well, if, if my church has been wrong about that issue potentially, well, maybe they're wrong about some other issues too, because a lot of these things are connected, right? right yeah. The authority of the Bible, you know, inerrancy, that kind of thing is, yeah. is very closely connected to um, the biblical case for uh, heterosexual marriage, if, I, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that. What were we talking about? Yeah, oh, we're that. talking about deconstruction <laughs> and reasons. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, so, like, when people go down that road, like, why, yeah. like... I get it if someone has been struggling with these issues in their own life, like get like has been struggling with their, their sexual orientation. Like, I mean, we say that now, like it's a thing, but I mean, 20 years ago, you don't even know how to say that. Um, like if you have been struggling with these things and obviously culture plays into that, into that, into their lives and people influence that from the world. But at what point do you decide that you're like going to pick your faith apart? And then do you find that that would be more, you know, driven by a need to, you know, throw off your faith because of, um, because you just need to justify that lifestyle or is it really like a, a, a pursuit that, that they do feel like the, their faith is, was never really, you know, true faith or, you know, like, what are they, what are they finding at the end of that road? Well. Certainly for some people, if they're really, really honest, they've, they've made a decision, they've made a moral decision mm. that conflicts with what they've 
been taught the Bible teaches. And they're trying to find a way to be able to pursue that moral decision that they've made. Right. Uh, and for some, that requires them to give up their faith entirely. So the example I always use is Aldous Huxley. Um, you know, he wrote Brave New World, phenomenal book, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he admits in very, very openly and honestly, he says, basically, he says, me and my friends, we wanted sexual liberation. But in order to have sexual liberation and do whatever we wanted sexually, we had to throw off constraints around sexual practice. And those constraints that we were raised with were all religiously based. So if we got rid of our religion, we got rid of God, then we were free to do whatever we wanted sexually. Right. And that's sometimes the case. I, I heard a, a, a youth pastor guy, he, he worked with college students once um, in a conference he was talking about he was talking about the phenomenon that sometimes happens, and maybe you guys have heard of this too, right? Kid grows up in a Christian home, grows up in a solid church, actually, and um, they're involved in youth group and they're involved in um, ministry, and uh, they seem to demonstrate a vibrant kind of Christian faith of sorts, anyway. Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's not necessarily a very mature faith, but it seems to be authentic from all intents and purposes. And then they go off to university and they come back and they, they have all these doubts and they're wondering, and they're, they're finding their faith under attack, right? And, you know, you've got the, the classic examples of the philosophy professor who says, I can prove to you that God doesn't exist. Like, wasn't there this movie or something? God's, God's not dead or something yeah, was yeah, all yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh, terrible book. Yeah, it was, it was garbage. It's awful. It's like maybe <laughs> it's take, terrible. But it, the plot is terrible. <laughs> well, and frankly, the characterization of every non-Christian in that movie is like they're Satan incarnate. Yeah. And they're just terrible, terrible people. And black. every Christian in the movie is just this angel. Right? <laughs> it's very Which, black and white. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, that's not what we're talking about. But so they come back and they're struggling with their faith. And this guy said, he said, you know, I will meet, I'll meet with these guys. They go off to university. They come back. They're struggling with their faith. And I meet with them at a coffee shop. And they start telling me that they're facing all these challenges to their faith. And, you know, they, they, they thought that the Bible was trustworthy, but then they were in this, you know, uh, history class or this world religions class. And they discovered, you know, all these things about how the Bible was put together by human beings. And we can't really trust that Jesus said half the things that we read in the gospels and all this kind of stuff, all these things that have been addressed basically since the beginning over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And I'm struggling with my faith. And he says, the first question I ask them is, do you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? And if they say yes, the second question I ask them is, are you sleeping together? And he said, nine times out of 10, the answer is yes. Hmm. And what he was saying, what he meant by that was that oftentimes, like human beings, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in The Righteous Mind, right? Like it's, we, book. it's an yeah. excellent book, right? Yep we think we're so rational and we make our decisions rationally, but we are just, yeah. our, our brains are this little guy sitting on top of this massive elephant called our emotions and our will. And it's really the elephant that's driving the, the, the little guy on top. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way around. And so our desires often direct our beliefs. Yeah. And so in, in the deconstruction movement, you, you see a lot of, you see a lot of that. I'm not saying it happens every single time, but it's right. often the case that there are desires that people have that they're trying to figure out a way to make it fit with their faith. And sometimes that requires them to jettison the faith entirely. Sometimes it just means they got to modify it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's the best way to, uh, to get ahead of that um, problem and to, to give people the tools to, to investigate their faith, but do so in a way that uh, hopefully isn't completely driven by emotion based mm -hmm. on a change in life uh, situation or whatever. Like, for example, if you use the, the classic kid going off to college, like what do you, what does the church need to do to aid that young person before they go off to university or college uh, to give them the tools to investigate their faith in a, in a healthy environment? I don't know. <laughs> oh, great. All right. That's it. No. Uh, <laughs> well, you talked about a culture of like being able to kids being able yeah. to ask hard questions. And that's like, I thought that was 
pretty uh yeah pretty so important. so i think that's probably the biggest thing because if you if you listen to the stories of deconstruction a theme that you will hear over and over again is that um folks grew up in a church culture where they did not feel it was safe to question the authorities mm. and question the assumed beliefs of the community. And so they stuffed them for a really long time and they went along and they even tried to convince themselves that they believed them. But then something along the line happens in their lives. Often it's a crisis or a transition or, or, or something like that, right? An experience that sort of triggers the journey mm. away, right? And, and, you know, it's very common that that happens when a young person moves away. So now they have the physical space from their parents' home and from their home church community, et cetera. And now they can actually like process mm. without feeling that they're being stifled. So I think probably the, the, the first thing is for the church to become comfortable with doubt mm. and to be okay with young people questioning things like, you know, it when someone kicks the tires of the car, you know, it doesn't mean they hate the car. They're checking out the car. Right? right. And you gotta let young people kick the tires. If you really be, and this is the funny thing, if you really believe it is the truth, it won't bother you as much. Yeah, you'll be like, <laughs> yeah. okay, you wanna I you wanna investigate and think about this from other perspectives and you know experience uh other viewpoints in the world and stuff and chat and and hold them up against the christian faith let's do it yeah. that's fine like in my home with my kids um because this is sort of my my thing i've always been interested in apologetics and stuff like that so you know when my kids were my when my kid was 10 years old my oldest son i'm like so do you like the bible stories and he's like yeah they're they're really interesting i especially like samson and stuff like that and i said yeah. well how do you know they're true <laughs> Right. Introduce like, a little vaccine well, of doubt. You told me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like you can already start then yeah. making questions okay. Mm, it's yeah. safe, you know, to ask questions. Um preachers, I think, can work very should work very, very hard at trying to understand what objections and questions people have, even as they're writing their sermon. I do it all the time. I, mm. I while I'm writing my sermon, I'm thinking okay, if there's a skeptic in the audience, what are they thinking about what I'm saying right now? Right. And then try to actually address it. Mm. Raise the question yourself yeah. and then try to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a really, really big part of how we can prepare generations to, to face these kinds of things because then they won't go out into life and find themselves sort of blindsided by the objections or by the issues that that mm. they're that that often lead people to deconstruct right so if you're already discipling your children in a biblical identity and the importance of the creation story to issues of sex and gender identity and stuff then yeah. then they're going to be able to understand better mm -hmm. how to defend themselves when they hear alternative opinions right um so i think that that's a that's a huge part of it and the other thing is um this may not sound very popular but i think we have to we have to reset people on the gospel itself what do i mean by that i've seen it so many times in the church so these are people born and raised in good solid churches who they go through a crisis where they have something happen in their life that really sucks and they don't just say why me which is okay to say because job asks the question right mm. david asks the question nothing wrong with that but they don't stop there they 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 can't handle their suffering and face their suffering through a gospel lens and which means that that when they look at the problems in their in their immediate circumstances they don't have the tools to realize first of all this is this life is a short life and these things will be over in the next life and that's the life that ultimately mm -hmm. matters 
So you say that to a Westerner and they can't get their head because we can't, none of us can live outside of our frame of reference, which is yeah. time bound, et cetera. Right. You actually have to do the work to think from an eternal perspective and to mm -hmm. say, you know, as Teresa Avia says, you know, when we get to heaven, all the suffering in the world will seem like one uncomfortable night in a lousy hotel. Yeah. And we go, what? But that's what Paul says, right? Mm. He says that, that um, all the suffering, what does he say? There well, is a... Uh, he says second. all the suffering in the world will, will be nothing compared to the glory yeah, that we I, experience. Yes, but, that's right. A glory yeah, that will far yeah. outweigh them all. Yeah. Second Corinthians 4. I know, what, I know what I'm saying, but I'm just not saying it. I, mean, I don't know what I'm saying, and you knew where it was, so... <laughs> to right? to like, like, this is what... This is what Paul is saying. He's saying basically, you know, all the heartache that you have in this life is going to be, you're going to look back on it when you're in the next life. You're going to look back on it as like a paper cut. Hmm. And we, we just, we don't realize that. We don't live out of that. And we don't try to live out of that because we're not saturating ourselves with the, the, the biblical story. Mm. So that it actually shapes the way we face our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, we're letting the culture a lot of times, like you mentioned expressive individualism, which I know you did an episode on too, which I enjoyed. Um, but you, but we're letting the culture like explain to us how we should feel about things when not having that eternal mm -hmm. view, that Christian view of like, and I mean, it's, it is very hard, like, because yeah, like you said, like we're living in our frame of reference and everything that we're we're bombarded with all day like our news and everything comes from a different frame of reference than we should be really worried about yeah so how do you even it just takes yeah it takes work like you said just combat that all the time and and it takes it takes being reminded again of what the what the gospel is centrally about so jesus came to save us from our sin he didn't come to save us from our loneliness he didn't come to save us from our cancer. He didn't come to save us from our bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. He came to save us from our sin. And remember, you know, we were talking about how wicked we are before, mm -hmm. right? Well, when you realize how monumental that actually is, that you are saved from your sin, that you are free from guilt, you are free from shame, you mm -hmm. are free from the penalty of death, you are free from the fear of judgment and the fear of death, you're, fear, you're free from all of that stuff, then when you suffer, then you will have a joy that that suffering cannot overcome. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing that cannot be taken away from you, even if your health is taken away from you, even if your family and your job and your friends and everything is taken away from you, yeah. the one thing that can't be taken away from you is your salvation from your sin. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say this, guys, but I just feel sometimes like in the church, that doesn't matter enough to people. Yes. Yeah, it's, it it's that frame of reference that it's hard to, well, it does. It takes work to think like in a, in any other time than we're living in, which is like the pain is now. So how do you get, you got to get outside of the now to get outside of the pain. Well, you, you made a good point on one of your episodes too, which is like in today's culture, we come to church to be encouraged and to yeah to to receive some wisdom and for our, our walk throughout the week but in olden times and like whatever going back throughout history it was you came to church to explain why your life sucked so bad <laughs> and you had to be a miserable uh, peasant throughout the entire week yeah. and farm potatoes yeah and now our lives are too easy and too good in a lot of respects and we're in the Western world, again. in the Western, in the Western <laughs> yeah, world, exactly. For a lot of the listeners of this podcast, for I don't know if there's anybody in Africa, but yeah, I'm but, pretty sure if you're listening to a podcast, you're doing okay. That's fair. Probably it means you yeah. probably have a smartphone. Yeah, yeah. Probably <laughs> done for yourself. Yeah, but it's true, right? I mean, if you if you think about it, like Jesus, he meets this woman at the well, right? And he he tells her that he has a water for her, that if she drinks that water, she will never thirst, right? And she says, oh, give me that water, and then I don't have to come back to the well. He goes, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. The water that I give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now think about it. A spring is, is this perpetual bubbling up of water. And if you try to cap a spring, then the water's going to find somewhere else to pop up, or it's going to pop up through the cap again, and it's just going to keep bubbling up. 
Well, life has hardship. It just does. Like life sucks. People don't, it's like the one, Jordan, even Jordan Peterson knows life is suffering. Okay. He's <laughs> getting into the impression there. <laughs> right? Life Why is suffering, suffering, man. <laughs> it is. Right. And you know, Kermit that's the, the reality of it. Yeah. But if you are a Christian, this is what is so amazing about Christian hope. If you are a Christian, all that suffering can be thrown on your spring. That is mm -hmm. the hope of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it cannot stop it. It mm -hmm. will bubble up. It'll, I'm not saying it'll be easy. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, you, you're, you know, you, you just diagnosed, diagnosed with terminal cancer and you walk out of your house the next day. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a beautiful day. Right. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying you're not, you're not going to have hard times. Of course yeah. you're going to have hard times, mm. but we should be the most joyful people on the planet because we have a, a suffering or we have a hope that no amount of suffering could ever take away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we but, need that eternal mindset to really appreciate that. And we mm -hmm. need to realize it's our sins are forgiven. Like the problem, yeah. the problem is sin and sin has been dealt with. Yeah. That mm -hmm. should matter to us more because let's face it. Too many times we say, yeah, 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 yeah. My sins are forgiven. Yeah, but yeah. what are you doing for me today? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I did something for you 2000 years ago. That was pretty awesome. And you yeah. shouldn't forget that. Leaning yeah. on the daily bread a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> so you you mentioned the triggers a little, like you did mention the three. So in your podcast, you went through a few of the triggers mm -hmm. that trigger somebody or could trigger somebody to kind of deconstruct their faith. So can we like walk through those three and can you like sure. just explain like, um, I think you mentioned experience and life, um, like a life transition and then like crisis. Yeah. And how do those, um, and that, yeah, like how do they trigger somebody to deconstruction? And then also like, how do you, we like help help? And like, how can we walk along alongside someone when we see them going through something like this and then starting to question and, and really pull their faith apart? Yeah. Well, uh, so experience. Experience just means, you know, you've had, it could be anything from, well, here's an example. Uh, you remember when the Ravi Zacharias stuff came out, mm. um, there were people who they, they came to faith through the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. Mm. And now they discover the guy was a sexual predator and they say, well, can I believe anything that he said? Like, is, is my faith real? Is any of that real? Right. And so they have this experience that sort of triggers them through mm -hmm. through the process of deconstruction. So that's that's one way that people can sometimes uh, or they've they've had an experience in a church, they've been hurt by a church or they hear about scandals in the Catholic Church or residential schools or any of these kinds of things mm -hmm. that demonstrate the hypocrisy of the church or the inconsistency at the very least of right. the church between what it believes and what it practices. Right. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things can trigger can trigger it for sure. Transitions is just, you know, whenever you go through a big life transition, it makes you reflective. <laughs> right. Uh, and it also it also provides space, like we were talking about kids going off to school, for example, provides mm -hmm. space now for you to analyze and evaluate where you've come from because you've got a bit of distance, right? So you get a new right. job or you move to a different town or you have your first kid. I remember when I had my first kid and I was like, boy, buddy. <laughs> you believe this stuff you better really believe this stuff because you're a dad now and i don't yeah. know if that's good theology but i remember thinking that yeah yeah, right? it's a checkpoint. <laughs> yeah, like, it's right. one, yeah. so then you started asking the kid the question <laughs> that's right come on kid <laughs> <laughs> so so those are the kinds of things that can happen and then yeah crisis of course is is very common right mm. so if you have a death in the family or you you do have a health scare of your own or a relationship breakdown or something like that you know, because then you're brought to the end of yourself. And mm. um, sometimes, you know, when your theology is bad and you think that God should, you know, love you and take care of you and give you good things because you love him and you pray to him and you mm. read your Bible and you go to church and therefore he kind of owes you and then your life goes sideways, then uh, you start to question your faith, which means you didn't quite understand the faith to begin with, of course. Right. 
Um, so these are all things that can happen. And what does it mean? What does it mean to walk alongside someone who's going through this? Um, obviously, it means that you've got to be patient with your friends as they suffer and try to be as compassionate uh, with their circumstances as possible. Because if it is rooted in a crisis event or, or, or some big life event, right, they, they're just knocked off kilter because of it. And they need you to be a steady uh, support in the middle of it all, mm -hmm. right? So there's that. Um, so patience, walking alongside. But the big thing, I think, is reminding people of the gospel. Mm. Of course, you can give them resources. There's tons of resources out there when they're questioning, like, oh, you know, I, I don't know how to deal with, uh, you know, questions about sexuality. There's a million books on that. And there's a mm. million books on um, evidences for the resurrection or right, you know, right. creation or something. Yeah. Like all of these things, mm. there's all kinds of apologetic resources out there that you can give people. And yep. that's fine. That's always helpful. Um, but the big thing is to remind them of the actual gospel, mm. because one of the things you can say then is, okay, if you, if you give up the faith, what's the advantages of that? It's especially with re in relation to suffering, right? Like people say, I, I can't believe in God because all the bad things that happened to me or someone I love are in the world. Right. I say, okay, we'll take away God. God's out of the picture. Yeah, it didn't get much but better. <laughs> your life still sucks. The world's still a mess. Now how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. Like, so you want to give a positive case for how how Christ, the Christian faith and and having a true relationship with Jesus. And I'm not just talking about knowing some doctrines, but you actually have mm -hmm. a living relationship with Jesus is a resource in the midst of these struggles, right? As opposed to an obstacle to uh, some sort of resolution with these struggles. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's great. I mean, that's like, yeah, that's all I can really think of. Like. I mean, walking beside so every case is different, I guess, right? Like mm -hmm. it's it's impossible to give like a one size fix, you know, fixes all problems kind of answer. So that's uh yeah. That's good. I I'm what kind of you got? I'm I'm good to go here. I think we're at around I mean, an hour or so. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, Paul wanted to keep it around an hour. That goes <laughs> goes quick. <laughs> it does go quick. You're and right. I think like the only other question I had was like some examples, but I think you've worked them in, like I mean, tons of examples of what the different kinds of things are. Are there any other like issues or, or things that people struggle with that you might be able to point to that say like this is pretty prevalent these days like the sexual one we've definitely covered off on and yeah like, and, that, and that's other... the big one um i think i think what is like perceived hypocrisy of the church mm. is a big one too right so so let's face it you have a church catholic church the anglicans did it the presbyterians did it they, they all did it they, they had these schools that they ran on behalf of the government, which yanked indigenous children out of their homes. And then horrible things happened to some of those kids and some of those kids died. And, and this was done by the body that proclaimed to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Mm. That's a tough thing for people to deal with that's right. a tough pill to swallow like you know you call yourself christians and this has happened so you gotta you gotta face that we gotta face that head on um i think uh in and this is more american context than canadian context but the but the marrying of sort of uh politics and religion has kind of turned people off to the faith uh to the christian faith to some degree right um and then you throw in issues of racism and stuff. A lot of this, I, I don't know how applicable it is to Canadians who are deconstructing. But surprisingly, like a number of the Canadians that I've known who have gone through deconstruction, it is related because through their media feeds, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're following what's happening south of the border. So they're they're not necessarily participating in it as a citizen, but they're participating in it intellectually, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So I think, yeah, issues around race um, and race relations yeah. is, is another one that people deal with um, in more conservative complementarian circles, you know, stories of uh, um, how women are treated in the church mm. that come out, you know, uh, 
pastor abuse or just hard sort of patriarchal authoritarian communities mm-hmm. um, that co- causes people to to wrestle with uh, with these questions mm-hmm. as well. And then I think another one because we're in a very multicultural country ourselves um, is believers from other faiths, right? So the idea that the exclu- exclusivity of Jesus, right? right? Like how in the world can we say we've got the truth and why can't a sincere Muslim or a sincere Hindu um, meet God in the same way as us? You yeah, know? we love to be tolerant, but... Yeah, like yeah. exactly. That's the Canadian way, yeah. right? You know, yeah. religion is a mountain. God's at the top. Everybody's got their different starting point at the bottom, but we yeah. all meet each other yeah, at right. the end. Doesn't that sound nice? It sounds right? nice, yeah. I mean, if only that was the way, you know? Mm-hmm. It also sounds nice not to have to have someone die for you, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's not the world we live in. That's right. Good point. Indeed. All right. Well, hey, man, thank you for your time. That was uh, a fantastic was podcast. Time flew by. Yeah, it was great to be here, guys. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And I hope people, I mean, clearly, obviously, the gospel message shines through in, in your work and what you do. And just want to wish you blessings in, in all your work and at your church. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thanks for uh, continuing to cover topics like this. and. Yeah, you can Direct check it. out uh, Pastor Paul Vandenbrink on uh, the the Thinking no, the Clear Thinking podcast. That wasn't very clear thinking. Yeah, that the was Clear ironic. Thinking podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Till yes. next time. Thanks so much. Keep having real talk. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.